Hey everyone, I'm very excited to be bringing on Dr. Nathan Price. He is the Chief Scientific Officer of Thorn Health Tech, which is a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ. He is the author of The Age of Scientific Wellness. Previously, he was the CEO of Longevity, an AI health in intelligence company that merged with Thorn prior to the IPO. In 2019, he was named as one of the 10 emerging leaders in health and medicine by the National Academy of Medicine which is quite a prestigious institution. And in 2021, he was appointed to the Board on Life Sciences of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, which is also a very prestigious institution. He spent much of his earlier career as a professor, associate director of the Institute for Systems Biology, now on leave. He's a co-director with biotechnology pioneer Lee, Leroy Hood of the Hood Price Lab for Systems Biomedicine. He is a Camille Dreyfus Teacher Scholar, received the 2016 Grace Goldsmith Award for his pioneering uh, scientific wellness, and received a Healthy Longevity Catalyst Award from the National Academy of Medicine in 2020. Thank you very much for coming on, and I we have a lot to talk about, Nathan. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Joe. Glad to be here. All right, so let's let's go right into it. Your the CSO of a company that sells a lot of supplements, but you have a PhD in, what was your PhD in again? My PhD is in bioengineering uh, from UCSD. Okay. okay. And then you're, are, are you still a professor? I'm an on leave professor. So I still have, you know, some, you know, papers and, and still do some work uh, on the science side. And I'm also affiliate professor at the university of Washington in bioengineering and computer science. Okay, cool. And your system of your area of expertise is systems biology, correct? That is correct. And you were also uh, you were also a CSO of uh, Araval before. At some point, I didn't mention that. Yeah, which yeah. is a genetics company. Yeah, was well, a genetics kind of big, uh, also scientific wellness company. I was one of the co-founders with Lee Hood and Clayton Lewis, who was our CEO. Okay, so you have a never. Yeah, <laughs> you you have a breadth of experience and knowledge about a whole bunch of scientific topics, especially as it relates to biology, wellness, medicine, and things like that. So let's get into supplements. Because <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> you are uh, you know, a leading figure in Thorn, and I wanted to know, what do you, what do you, how many supplements do you take a day? <laughs> Me personally, I, I take probably way too many. I probably take like 20 supplements a day or something like that. 20 supplements. Okay. All right. I, t I take more than 70, FYI. <laughs> okay. You're, you're more than I am. You're more than I am then. Some of those are not right. those, I suppose. But. Okay. What, uh, what, what are, let's go into what kind of supplements you take. Because I think supplements are a bit controversial, right? There's some people... I think if you go to a regular doctor, they just say, okay, somebody's taking supplements, you've got expensive pee, right? That's kind of a, you know, a, a way of thinking of some part of America, whereas other parts are very into it. Tell me, what do you take? What are some of the, what are the top 10 supplements you take a day or, you know, list as many as you can, I guess. Yeah. Uh, although if it's okay, I'd love to do a little bit of framing about kind of why, you know, what the interest is in this kind of area. If you, if you don't mind in terms of kind of why, you know, I would be interested in it and whatnot as we get into this, or maybe we can do it what? after. Okay. I was going to go with the top 10 and then ask you, why do you take that? But we could do, we could do that first. What are, you know, what are the things that you're trying to accomplish when you're either taking supplements or trying to be healthier? What are your goals? Yeah. So, I mean, so kind of what the, where the, the way that I come into this is really from, you know, this uh, thing that we call scientific wellness. Uh, but basically, it's the idea that um, if you if you look broadly at sort of the kind of things that we've been uh, doing in medicine, uh, the, the foundations of medicine were really set up in the 20th century with uh, Abraham Flexner. It was really set up for a world of chronic disease. And we had a uh, a time period where, um, and that was been inc incredibly successful. If you look at kind of the stuff we used to die of, we don't anymore. But if you fast forward to now and you look at chronic disease and the way that we deal with it is typically try to find a target drug it, that approach has not been terribly successful. So um, writ large. 
And so if you if you look at that, one of the things that then drives this notion of wanting to do things early, intervene, try to extend health span, that's the whole motivation, I think, for having to do interventions that are incredibly safe, that you can do for a long period of time, and then you can deploy with some precision. And that's kind of where, you know, I came into this, you know, why I moved to Thorne or why I was, um, you know, kind of jumped into this, this space. So on the supplement side, then I just want to, you know, kind of point out that natural products are just a very obvious place for us to find the kind of things that we would want to do, like in an early intervention type issue, trying to extend healthy aging, trying to do those kind of things. So, so from that standpoint, um, you know, we do try to marry, you know, deep testing, um, and AI, which are kind of my parts of the company in particular with, um, you know, supplements and natural products and solutions that we're trying to do in part, because you can do, like you were saying, you take 70 supplements and I take I don't know, 20 or 25 or something like that. Uh, but you can kind of do this like polypharmacy type thing, which you can't do in drugs. So the space is actually a lot more open for kind of a deep dive, like detailed measurements kind of a very individualized approach per person and in a way that on balance is generally uh, quite safe if you're focusing on the right kinds of natural compounds. Anyway, so I just wanted to say that, that, you know, that's kind of where I, I, I come yeah, into yeah, kind of approach. I, I wanted to go in a little more in depth in something you mentioned, which is the targeted versus broad spectrum. And, and that's kind of the philosophical approach to where you're coming into this, right? And that's where pharmaceuticals are very targeted and very strong in a single target, right? They, they're really good at getting something down or changing something or right. whatever it is. Whereas natural supplements or nutraceuticals, they're more broad spectrum. And you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's the way I feel about it. They're more broad, broad spectrum, which makes them safer, in my opinion, right? And uh, also more conducive to prevention because, you know, if you have cancer already, you really sometimes need to just really target those cancer cells or target something very specific in the body. Whereas if you're just trying to do wellness and you're trying to prevent cardiovascular disease and you don't want to take a drug, cardiovascular disease could be from 10, 20, 30 reasons, right? And these natural molecules can accomplish multiple reasons. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a really great point, Joe. And it's and cancer is a great example because, you know, when you think about drugs for cancer, which are typically things like cytotoxic chemotherapy, like that's the kind of you'll do that as a life saving you know, measure for late stage cancer. You would never give anything like that to a person who's otherwise well and trying to get healthier. Right. Which is kind of where the more natural product uh, approach comes in, because you are doing something that has to be essentially without side effects and um or very minimal and so the you know like the cardiovascular is an interesting one because as you know there are actually compounds um that you can take that will you know improve hemoglobin a1c uh, lower lipids and so forth things like berberine uh, for example uh, thorn has a new metabolic health product which is based around bergamot you know which other you know which is a, a common natural natural product i think uh, paired with curcumin uh, so there's a whole bunch of, you know, those kind of things, as you know, very well that are, that are geared towards, you know, just a bunch of natural products that you can uh, deploy based on, yeah, blood chemistries, blood measures that you might have that you want to, want to have it make a difference on. Right. And something like bergamot is going to bring down lipids like LDL, but it's also going to bring down inflammation and it has polyphenols in it that have broad spectrum activity that will do a lot of things. For, to prevent cardiovascular disease. And so in that regard, it's going to have usually less side effects than if you take a high dose statin and things like that. So th that's a great example. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about, uh, actually, I, I mean, let, let's bounce a little I bit. I to come back to your question about things I take or whatever. I didn't mean to. Yeah, like... yeah, yeah. No, no. I, 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 I want to get to that for sure. That's something that I'm very curious about. That's why I just went straight to that question. <laughs> I was just—I want to see where where I'm coming from, who I'm dealing with, what are you taking? It's kind of like you know, somebody asked like, "What school did you go to? Where do you live?" For me, if I want to get to know somebody, I'm like, "What supplements do you take?" <laughs> just tell me already. I want to know, <laughs> and then I can figure everything out about you. So, ah, oh, he's that type of guy. All right, all right, I know who he is. Uh, so, t tell me about. Uh, I, I love the just the general approach where 
you have supplements, you have testing, and you could see how these things are improving your health, right? It's not just I'm taking these supplements and then I'm guessing how these things are going to work for me. You're actually measuring, you're monitoring, and you're seeing, are these things working? And obviously, people are going to try to do a whole bunch of other things like exercise and you know a bunch of other natural behaviors. Supplements are just that. They're supplementing the other healthy things that you're supposed to be doing. But so I'm just, I just wanted to say I love that approach. Uh, tell me a little bit about lipids because something that very much, uh, I guess, annoys me in some way is that there's a big movement to say that LDL is not really a factor in cardiovascular disease. And I feel like you would have good insights on this. Uh, and, and people say uh, LDL in terms of LDLC. And, and there's some truth to that, but uh, they are, they're also saying that the LDL particle count, it's, if you have the big fluffy ones, the big particles, then it it's doesn't matter. Tell me what your whole idea is on LDL measurement and uh, if you think that is a factor for cardiovascular disease. Yeah, I'm, I'm hap- happy to get into that. Um, so, and I'll there, go down a couple avenues. So the first one is... Uh, you know, some of the things that I think that have come out from the science community around LDLC, I think it's still, you know, an important molecule, but there are other molecules that people have found that are, you know, probably more important. And you brought up some of them, right? The, 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 the formation or the, the kind of LDL particles that you have is really predictive. Uh, ApoB is actually uh, also really important. I know a lot of doctors really feel like that's, you know, one that they, they want to monitor very closely. So, so there are people that have really delved into that. Uh, one area that I do have some expertise on that I'm quite interested in, though, is if you're following. Uh, so, you, well, we mentioned uh, you mentioned Aravel before. So we had, you know, we're taking people through this wellness program, and one of the things that we did monitor was LDL cholesterol. And so, if people are going through a program trying to improve wellness, trying to lower LDL cholesterol, and you see mixed results in being able to do that. Now, what was really fascinating when we got in and did the data, and we published this all in a, uh, in a, uh, in a peer-reviewed paper uh, journal called uh, Scientific Reports, uh, but basically what it showed was that you could predict who would be able to lower their LDL cholesterol from their genome. And so this was, I think, the first paper, at least the first one I know of, that really showed that genome would predict the uh, success of a lifestyle-based intervention program. So what that and so one of the things that's really fascinating is that the genome predicts a lot of the of the variance of the information in LDL cholesterol. So some people will have a genome prediction that predicts they'll have high LDL cholesterol and others low. So if you take people that have the same LDL cholesterol uh, level, which would be treated exactly the same in the healthcare system today, if your genome predicts that you're high, you're very unlikely to be able to lower it other than on a statin. But if your genome predicts low and you're high, in other words, there's a gap or a delta there, then you're very likely to be able to lower it through lifestyle intervention. So by taking, and this is one of the things I'm a big believer in, because I think we should use genomic predictors across a, a broad swath of blood measures in the healthcare system, which we don't do today. But as we start folding the genome into healthcare, basically those deltas or those differences are highly predictive of what you can change and what you can't change because your genome will be working with you rather than against you. So that unlocks a whole new category of variable into healthcare, which does, which by and large doesn't exist today uh, at all. And that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And, and I have actually a specific case report myself. <laughs> oh, yeah. So <laughs> at self decode, we, we measure one of the things that uh, we have a genome predisposition for is LDL cholesterol. And mine actually says typical, right? And, I was thinking about this, you know, and and I've tested it. The first time I tested it was 10 years ago, and it was normal 10 years ago. I think it was pretty average. Uh, It was 120, which is, I think, more or less average for the population. I wasn't on any, you know, it was a mixed diet, omnivorous diet, not not trying to bring it down or anything. And then I went on a diet that works better for me, which is kind of like a carnivore-type diet, and my LDL cholesterol went to 216. And so in some way, I'm looking at my report, it says typical cholesterol and it says 216. Then I said, okay, I'm going to try to bring it down now. And I've, 
I started working out. I started do, doing things to bring it down. And by the way, I'm working against a little bit of a tide because I am eating a lot of animal foods, which is going to increase it, right? Everybody, you're on a carnivore diet, your LDL is going to go up. And, and I have that predisposition to go up quite high on saturated fat. Anyway, um, I was able to bring it down from 216 to 120 without any statins or anything like that. And so that that really, uh, the reason why I'm fascinated with what you just said is because I'm, uh, I'm like, I'm looking at myself like, yeah, I brought it down 100 points, which is incredible without a statin. And uh, it makes sense now that looking at my genetics risks and uh, I was why I was able to bring it down quite a lot. Yeah. And, and since you mentioned statins, actually, I'll, I'll you know, we did a, a paper earlier this year. Uh, this is with Sean Gibbons, a uh, longtime friend and collaborator at ISB. Uh, but basically that showed that you could actually predict the degree of efficacy of a statin. So how much a statin will affect your LDL cholesterol. And you can also predict um, uh, side effects. I'll come to that in a second from the microbiome, right? So we have a microbiome test, right? People can take it and whatnot. But one of the things that we showed from looking at thousands of microbiome data from thousands of people was that you that the degree to which a statin will lower a person's uh, LDL cholesterol, you could get a twofold difference based on the kind of microbiome that they had. And then the other big factor is if someone uh, takes a statin, uh, there's a 10% increase in the rate of diabetes for people that are on statins. And the likelihood, at least in the markers of that elevating a person's H, uh, hemoglobin A1C or, um, uh, uh, and, um, uh, trend, uh, or fasting glucose. So transitioning towards the diabetes turned out that was also predictive from the microbiome. Uh, and you've wow. got a massive increase. So there's a certain kind of microbiome. We just split it into these different clusters. And one of those, one of the four, so about a quarter of this, um, roughly uh, mapped into this high elevated risk for transitioning towards diabetes from the statin. So it, it turns out that the microbiome has much stronger predictive power for those outcomes. The Joe Cohen Show is unsullied by paid sponsors. Similar to Self Decode, I'm creating this podcast to help educate and empower people with their health. I'm reaching out to all types of biohackers, health practitioners, entrepreneurs, and more to give you the most valuable information out there. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please show some support and be sure to leave a review and subscribe to get notified on every new podcast release. I, I, I think you're uh, unique in the sense that you have expertise in the microbiome and, and not just very shallow expertise. I'm talking about real expertise in the microbiome, genome, lab testing, and, and supplements as well, of course. But tell me uh, how you see, uh, I'll give you a little bit of an example of how I see them, right? Because the idea is that people want to use them all together, right? Just focusing on one very narrowly is not going to uh, be very good in my opinion. You need to kind of look at a lot of things. And so the way I see it is the genome genetics is really, really good in giving you predispositions for a very wide range of things, right? And, yeah. and sometimes it could maybe prioritize some recommendations that you might want to do, or it can give you, you know, it could give you a lot of information, but then you use the microbiome and the lab testing to track and see what your progress is like. Is that, tell me how you see it. Yeah, I think that's one of the really most important things um, uh, to look at now. So, so a couple of ideas. So one is, you're exactly right. The genome has mostly been studied in the context of disease, right? So we have lots of these polygenic risk scores, they're called. For people that aren't familiar with that, that's essentially any particular variation in a gene. So like an A flipping to a T or a G or whatever, has a, usually has a small effect on an outcome. But what you can do is you can sum these up. I'll give one example, which is um, uh, just on the, on the science of that, which is height. So height is obviously heritable. Uh, because tall parents have tall kids and short parents have short kids. And we're all, we all see that for the most part. And what, in the early days of this, people were in genetics were confused because there was no gene for height and there weren't like a few genes for height. You couldn't predict height from the genome. And everyone's like, we know it's heritable and you can't, but you fast forward now a decade 
and you can now predict height really well. It's actually the most predictable trait. But how do you know how many variants it takes to predict height? How many? 180,000. 180,000 genes that you have to sum up. So there are these things called polygenic risk scores then. So you sum up all these little effects and you can gain predictive ability. So just like you can predict height, you can also predict LDL cholesterol, which I mentioned before, and you can predict a whole bunch of other things. And most of those predictions are aimed at disease just because that's the way that our, our system is set up as a study. Um, uh, and one of the things we did, we published this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences a couple years ago, but you can take, we took 54 of these different polygenic risk scores, and then you can look in the blood and you can identify measures in there that are correlated with that genetic risk. So these are really interesting signals because they point you towards the earliest possible transition states, at least potentially, for that disease. Because you're talking about people that don't have any symptoms, but they just have higher risk. And I'll give you an example. So um, ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, right? So uh, ALS uh, turned out that when we looked into the blood of people who are at high genetic risk of ALS versus not, uh, one of the things that was unusual is that the people that, would, that were at highest risk had unusually high omega-3s. Now, the reason that that's interesting is that in general, right, usually we think omega-3 is good, right, omega-6 is bad. And that's usually true, but not necessarily always true. And one of the, the interesting hypotheses that comes out of this kind of analysis is that uh, when you, is that it appears that high genetic, uh, risk for ALS is associated with having higher uh, um, uh, higher omega threes, and then what was done was there was a mouse experiment uh, that was done on a model of ALS where they actually gave the mice omega threes, and when they did that, they their symptoms of ALS accelerated. They got them younger, and when they gave them omega sixes, they got it late. They got it later in life. So that's only one axis, right? But it's fascinating because it's counterintuitive. It says, oh. If you're at that super high genetic risk, maybe you're in that top 2%, because these things tend to have kind of a hockey-shaped distribution of risk where it jumps up a lot at the tail. If you're in that super high risk, you know your trade-off for you of omega-3, omega-6s might look very different than someone in the general population. So there's all kinds of things like that um, you know, that come out of these kind of analyses that are that are really fascinating. We've only just starting to scratch the surface of this, this kind of- uh, Wow. You might get some carnivores hunting after you, just FYI. <laughs> They're really against vegetable oils and omega-6s. <laughs> but the body is very complex in some cases. Okay, but it's, you know, it's, they're details. They're just details. Right. I'm very happy you mentioned polygenic risk scoring because at Self-Decode, we do use polygenic risk scoring, and we're looking at many hundreds of thousands of variants and things like any complex disease, like cardiovascular disease, atherosclerosis, diabetes, these are going to have millions of variants, or at least hundreds of thousands of variants that are contributing to this risk score. And what we're seeing on the market is a new company every day that's looking at two or three variants and telling you your prediction for some disease. <laughs> Tell yeah. me what you think of it. <laughs> Tell me what you think about that. Like, can you predict any complex trait with, a, you know, a couple SNPs or something like that? Yeah. So, so the general rule here is, and it's, this one's pretty hard and fast. So if, if a variant, right, a gene variant, which again, is just a, a single base pair change. So, so if you look at any variant that's common in the human population, right? So, so that it's, um, you know, so that some fraction of people have it, that's not negligible those variants pretty much by definition have to have small effects. A 1% effect is very large in that sense. Most, virtually all these variants have smaller than a 1% effect. So in the early days of genomics and some of the nutrigenomics and things like this got a bad rap early on. And part of that was exactly this. You say, oh, there's this variant and it's associated with you know whatever trait. And so we're gonna go coach you on it. Well, the scientific papers behind that exist, right? It, it, there is legitimately a signal, but the signal is you have like some distribution like this, and then you have another one and it shifts by about that much. And it says, oh, you're in this distribution instead of that. On a personalized basis, that means almost nothing, right? It's very, very small. 
Um, now, the one exception to that is that for variants that are rare, so like a rare disease in a child, for example, those can have very significant effects. In fact, Lee Hood, you know, who's my my partner in in all this, and you know, was my my mentor back when I was training and all these kind of things. Like he did the he actually published in Science the first paper on a quartet of of individuals, mother, father, and two children. And that was sufficient for them to find the gene behind this rare syndrome that was in one of the children, uh, Miller's, uh, Miller's syndrome. Uh, and they, you know, that was a big paper in science, but you could do that because you're looking for a rare event. It's like a new mutation. It's something that's not going to be there in everybody. So you can dive in and, and actually find it. And there was also some really excellent studies, uh, Lincoln adult carried out at, um, at, uh, at Intermountain in uh, Utah in that hospital system where they were looking at outcomes for kids by introducing genomes in pediatrics. And in that case, they can find these, these rare mutations, but they show up because they're rare. But for most of us, when you're talking about building a company where you're looking at an individual or a small set of SNPs, most of those are not, they're not strong enough to be meaningful. But when you sum them all up under these polygenic scores, which is what we can do now, those are big enough to make, a, to make a real difference. I mentioned the prediction of those for whether you could lower LDL cholesterol or whatnot. The genome signal there is strong enough for someone to be below range clinically to above range clinically. So they are, you know, there's enough signal there that it matters and it's growing. It's actually even a lot bigger than when we did the paper off the Aravel data. It's, uh, I think that you can capture, I think it's twice as good now. It captured about 11% of variants then, now it's like 20. So wow. it's uh, getting better all the time. I'm, I'm so happy you said that because really I think this is one of the biggest things that has caused the bad rap in genomics, like you said, is taking a couple variants. And, and of course, like you said, these very rare variants are going to have a much bigger impact. But I'm talking about these variants above 1%. For sure. They're small. Yes. Yeah. Whereas, you know, and, and the whole gen consumer genomics space is basically dominated by companies taking a couple common variants and trying to predict something from it. And I keep trying to educate that you can't do that, which is why we spent many, many millions of dollars to build a system to do polygenic risk scoring rather than, you know, uh, we could have taken a, a few scientists a couple of weeks to take, collect a couple SNPs in, in a bunch of different, <laughs> okay, here's cardiovascular disease. We look on, you know, the GWAS, what's the, the, the most significant SNPs? Here you go. But, you know, my CSO said we, we, we modeled those things and it's basically maybe only slightly better than a coin flip essentially. Right. If that. Yeah. And here's, this is part of what I, I really believe in. And this is, you know, this is what we get into a lot in, you know, in, in the book, the age of scientific wellness, that's just about to come out and, and things like that as well. But we have, uh, if you, so, so what we, what, you know, I mean, when I say scientific wellness, which is, you know, not maybe a commonly understood term is the notion that, you know, rather than doing all of our studies like we do now on case control of late stage disease, what we actually need to do is to study and quantify wellness as deeply as possible and generate a lot of longitudinal data for people as they're in that wellness state, earliest stage transitions and fill in that gap because there's very little of that kind of information. So now that we have genomic signals that actually matter, what really matters now is that we take that and then we understand how it relates to all of that ongoing, you know, blood chemistry, uh, our microbiomes, you know, all the things that are going on in our bodies related to health, so that we can start to not wait until we have late debilitating symptoms that often are very hard if, to reverse, right? And the notion that you'll take something like Alzheimer's, the notion that you can give a single drug to an Alzheimer's patient who's half their neurons have died and re, and we have no chance, right? No chance. It hasn't worked. It has, no, they've been it trying. Worked. Yeah. They haven't. I have a lot of ideas about uh, Well, anyway, that's that's a whole whole <laughs> bigger, bigger topic. We've built a pretty sophisticated model of Alzheimer's over the last couple of years. But if you, if you take, uh, but if you think about prevention, you, there are lots of things you can do to prevent or push off into the future, the onset of mild cognitive impairment, the onset of dementia because there's a lot of things you can do to keep your neurons alive um, where you can bring it back. So that's, you know, that's a straightforward example. Diabetes is as well, right? Late stage diabetes, you have foot amputations and all this kind of, you know, gruesome things. 
early stage prevention of diabetes is, you know, eat a healthy diet and go on a run and, you know, maybe you wear a CGM and, you know, just learn what foods are really spiking you. And, you know, all, uh, CGM is a continuous glucose monitor for those that aren't in the vernacular of that, but it, you know, all those kind of things. And so, so that's, that's what I think is so important because with, with this idea of scientific wellness, what we want is to essentially, you know, recreate systems for health that let us stay healthier for longer, identify issues when they're small and reversible. And, you know, sometimes they can be dealt with, with a natural product or lifestyle or behavior, and you're not getting in, you know, or even if a drug is particularly safe, you could, you know, that could, that could be appropriate, but, uh, but you could you know, deal with these things early, be proactive. Don't wait until you have this terrible problem. And the cost difference is also huge, right? Because, um, so some of the things like for prevention of Alzheimer's, exercise is huge because you need to maintain oxygenation into the brain. This is a huge aspect of keeping your neurons fed with energy. They also need to have enough um, choline. So like phosphatidylcholine uh, we, in simulations we've run, phosphatidylcholine actually becomes rate limiting as your oxygenation goes down as you get older in Alzheimer's and it becomes harder for your neurons to stay alive. Uh, we have chemicals uh, model simulations of this, but basically you run out of phosphatidylcholine. You can take a phosphatidylcholine supplement for your entire adult life for about $4,000 total, like for, you know, that's across your life. Uh, Agihelm, which was the new approved drug from, uh, from the FDA that helps to clear amyloid, which by the way, I do not believe is a cause of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, okay. A lot of a lot of data behind that now. Uh, yeah, yes, sir. No. Mainly, they've given drugs for and it ha and it hasn't worked. It clears amyloid, but it doesn't improve cognition. Doesn't because it's not causal. And so, so when that when that happens, but Agihelm, just to come back to the main point, is fifty was approved and then charged at fifty six thousand dollars a year. Wow. So again, wow. fifty six thousand a year or four thousand for your entire life. And people who have dietary studies, people who had diets rich in phosphatidylcholine, which is, you know, eggs is like a primary source, they get Alzheimer's three years later than people who don't. So wow. you're actually getting a benefit, at least, from that kind of an approach that you're not getting from, um, you know, in a, in a drug kind of thing. You know, and we'll give the usual caveat of, you know, <laughs> needing, you know, longitudinal studies and, and and, you know, and proof behind all those kind of things, but you're getting, um, but I think the economic argument in favor of something like scientific wellness is, is very strong as you, as the proof points really start to accumulate. I think Alzheimer's is a great example of one of those things that start, you know, early on, right? It doesn't start when you're 80. It starts when you're, I don't know, 30. I, I'm just guessing, but something like a, 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 a theriosclerosis, for example, I think is also a great example where it starts from the day you're born pretty much, right? Is, uh, you know, the, the more cholesterol, oxidized cholesterol, these things are uh, building up in your arteries and it's just over time it gets, your arteries are getting hardened and this calcification building up and you don't want to prevent it when you're 80, right? I mean, it could still help if you lower your cholesterol, your ApoB and things like that, but you, that's something you want to prevent earlier on. And I, I have a polygenic risk score for atherosclerosis uh, in self-decode that puts me in the 85th percentile, which is quite significant in that, you know, my risk is going to be significantly higher. And that means that I want to track my lab markers like ApoB most significantly. And because the, the higher your ApoB, that is contributing to uh, atherosclerosis over time, even when you're 30, it's you're just not going to get a heart attack right away, but it's still contributing. So I really like that example. So after you started taking supplements, you're, you've noticed improvements in your lab markers, right? Uh, is, For is sure. That, yeah. yeah it, okay. I, you know, I was pre-diabetic. I, my, my omega-3s, as I mentioned, were totally cratered. My vitamin D was, was very low. That one, you know, that one I do remember because my vitamin D was, was like a nine or 10 or something it was like super low. And, you know, it took me a while, but, you know, up dosage until we got up into the 45, 50 range that you kind of want to be in. So you're, you mean to tell me that supplements aren't just making your pee more expensive? <laughs> no, I feel like, I feel like, they're, they're been think, well, there's been certain ones that helped me a lot uh, in acute. So I did go through a period where I was having, um, 
you know, pretty chronic constipation for a while, um, which was uh, unpleasant. Uh, that was actually my first introduction to Thorn back in the day because someone had recommended their product. It was before I met any of these guys, and so I used their product, uh, 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 Gut Mend and Fiber Mend, and took that. Uh, cleared me right up. Um, was totally fine. Quit using it. Went back. Started it again. Uh, and then after about a month of that, then I, I didn't really uh, need to take uh, need to take it. After that, I was pretty much resolved. And then, uh, but some of those things I notice, or I used to have a lot of bloating, a lot of gas bloating. And I did the, you know, I did the, uh, the prebiotic plus that we've got, but which is a non-fiber based like prebiotics, um, polyphenol, um, all printed on this. It's actually kind of a cool thing. It's these, uh, two dimensional printed discs that dissolve. They just form, make a beverage. But I do notice that like if I, if I have that, um, well, the, the cool thing there is that um, one of the things with probiotics is that if you just take probiotics, and I'm sure you're aware of this, they often can't compete, right? So because you've got all these existing bacteria that have been there that, that are really good at what they do. So when you put a new bacteria and they mostly flow through, they don't they don't stay in particularly. So in the disc, what we do is we actually put bacteriophages in there. So it, it kills off some of those bad bacteria. So it creates an ecological niche and then it creates space for the good bacteria to grow. And then you put on in there the food that they like to eat uh, so that they have a competitive advantage. So you can you can do that uh, anyway. Oh, nice. I'll say is I do some of those things like for because what I'll notice is if I don't do it for a while, so then I'll, I'll get like bloating or gas in my stomach. And I'll remember I used to feel that way all the time. I forget that now. But, you know, if I go back four or five years, I it was just kind of always uncomfortable. I just didn't know it was supposed to be different. <laughs> and I think there's a ton of that out there in the world where, I mean, you only live inside yourself, obviously. And so you only kind of know how you feel. And I think often we become it, like another thing. Uh, Cause I remember in, um, you know, every spring in Seattle, like I would people, you know, I would always say like, seasonal affective disorder or not having sunlight never affected me. I'm like, I don't care. I'm a pretty happy person, but I'll tell you every spring, I feel like insanely happy. Right. <laughs> and, so, and then every spring, it's like every spring it comes out. You're like, you're like, wow, I'm so happy. You're like, Oh, maybe it was affecting me. I just, you know, I didn't realize it. I, I think that's a really important point that the, the body is really good at trying to cope with whatever state you're in and be happy with it or else everybody would want to commit suicide. Like, Oh fuck, I got all these negative things about myself. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I can't stand this anymore. I think people are really good at convincing themselves. I'm normal. Everything's good. And there's some benefits to that, but I've noticed massive changes and like it just, and, and through a lot of it through supplements, healthier living and, and a, you know, a bunch of different things. But I've noticed massive, massive changes and it's hard to even imagine what I was like before because before I just thought, well, this is normal. This is how I am. It's very hard to understand how other people are. So I, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And the, and the other thing in, is, you know, so we developed this biological age st score and we looked at that kind of retrospectively in, uh, you know, in the population, the data that we had uh, collected from Arabelle. And one of the things I was surprised by is that my biological age during that four-year period relative to my chronologic age improved by 2.7 years per year, four years in a row, it went down 10 years. Wow. Wow. And, you know, that was partly, you know, personalized recommendations. I got rid of my car, so I was walking to work back and forth. That was like five <laughs> miles, so that was better. Um, I got, um, you know, there was all the supplements I was doing. Uh, one thing I did, and, and I was a pretty big outlier for men, women tended to do better than women got better at one and a half year per year, men at 0 0.8. So I was a big outlier for the men. Uh, that's all published, by the way, in um, uh, journals of gerontology in 2019. But when we looked at that, um, it was very interesting because, uh, you know, that process just got, it got better year over year. And like I said, I had been like happy and sad with sort of some of the things that had gone on. Cause you know, like I mentioned, I, you know, I lost weight, but then I kind of gained it back and I kind of felt like I'd been up and down, but on the marker level, like for the, you know, from the biological age, it just like ticked down, 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 down. Uh, and I was feeling uh, a lot better. So 
And one of the things I was doing, and I, I don't know if it's you know the reason or not that I was such a big outlier, but one of the things I was doing that not everyone was doing was I was taking nicotinamide riboside, right? And this is one of you know NR, and this is one of the things that are that's pretty interesting just from you know an aging standpoint. And you mentioned some of the things that I take. I, I you know, I'm a big believer in, or at least a cautiously optimistic believer, let's say, in a number of these molecules, like if we can show that they extend lifespan or health span across a number of different animal systems and they pass safety tests in humans and you can do a functional test. So you see that they're hitting the, you know, in this case, the elevation of NAD in your cells, you know, those are things that I'm sort of willing to take a bet on. It's we're still not to the point where we have long-term human studies that prove, right. That some of these things will extend health span you know, in, you know, and especially lifespan in humans, because we live for a long time, it's going to take a while to get there. But I do think there's this whole class of molecules that are very interesting from the standpoint that they target these really conserved mechanisms. We see that they extend health span from, you know, yeast to flies to mice. And so there's, you know, there's at least a chance. So some of those kind of things I, I do incorporate into my, my daily routine, you know, Is even there- in of knowing for sure that they will have that effect, but I do feel it in in energy, and I you know, and I take the shot that I'm I'm hopeful that it will have the you know the health span effect. Right, I have the same philosophy. I, I used to take nicotinamide riboside, and I started to take NMN. Mm-hmm. It, do you have any opinion on one better than the other, or uh, just you know why you take NR instead of NMN? These yeah, are di- two different. Uh, forms of niacin right they're two different forms yeah, of niacin they create increase nad plus just for the the listener um and there's kind of like a debate about what's better for aging or for health or whatever nr or this nmn yeah my guess is that they'll have fairly similar effects because they are chemically close um i have gone nr and i'll just acknowledge i have a conflict you know thorn sells nr and they don't sell nmn um okay. by the way the people that are arguing the opposite have the same conflict in the opposite. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, I'll just caveat with that. Um, so there's a number of reasons that that we do NR though and not NMN. Um, so for one, NR just has a lot more human data on it. Uh, NMN is sort of catching up on that front. Uh, also, there is a debate. Both sides will claim that they're closer to the target, but I think the the claim of NR is stronger, uh, and I'll explain why. So inside the cell, NR becomes NMN, becomes NAD. So that's the argument that's that you hear promulgate all the time. They say, well, NR has to become NMN to become NAD. Inside the cell, that's true. But NMN cannot cross the membrane of the cell. So outside the cell, NMN has to become NR to move into the cell to become NR, to become NMN again, to become NAD. <laughs> so since you ah. ingest inside of the cell, to me, NR is closer because NMN has to be converted back in order to go across the membrane to then convert into NMN and go forward. And there, mm. you know, there's some complexities in the chemistry and so forth, but that's one. Uh, a second is that NR is, uh, is more stable, uh, easier to make, um, um, better, uh, so easier from a manufacturing uh capability and just, uh, and more stable, easier to ship things of that nature is, you know, I think drove Thorne a lot towards that. Now I, I try as best as I can to not be dogmatic on, on any of these things or anything, if I can help it. Uh, meaning that, you know, if, if really good compelling human data came out that said, Hey, NMN is significantly better for some reason that I don't understand currently, uh, than NR. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'll, I'll take anything that I think will uh, extend my life, you know, significantly. So if it comes out, but at the, at the moment, I just feel like there's more human data for NR and it's, uh, and I think the argument is stronger that it's closer to the target, Okay, uh, but they probably, they're probably both useful. I would imagine. Okay. Let's move to, uh, Alzheimer's that we, we mentioned it a little before and phosphatidylcholine. You said phosphatidylcholine is promising to help prevent. Alzheimer's by a certain amount of time. What do you think when I look at phosphatidylcholine? I take it, by the way, mm-hmm. but I see mixed research on phosphatidylcholine increasing TMAO, which can increase the risk of Alzheimer's. And you're an expert on the microbiome, and TMAO is this 
you know, bad thing that's produced by certain microbes in the microbiome. And when you consume phosphatidylcholine, it increases TMAO. That's the initial study said that, but then later studies said it didn't. What's your take? Does phosphatidylcholine increase TMAO? And if yes, is that a problem? Yeah. In fact, I was going to bring it up before because I've, I've talked about this publicly a few times and, and I actually put a, a little bit about this into a paper I published in Nature Aging a month ago. So uh, yes, it's actually one of my f- uh, favorite examples for personalization. So, so phosphatidylcholine right there. So there's some evidence that this is useful for, you know, for uh, dementia, uh, prevention of dementia, which we talked about. Uh, there's evidence that it's good for your liver, right, which is what um, I think Thorne's actual marketed claim is around. Um, I think, uh, I think around uh, uh, structure function related to that. Um, but, but the, um, so you've got this benefit potentially that um, phosphatidylcholine has, but if you have, and by the way, it's not just phosphatidylcholine, it's also carnitine, right? Carnitine, phosphatidylcholine. There are certain bacteria that will eat phosphatidylcholine um, or carnitine and turn it into trimethylamine. Now, when trimethylamine gets into your blood, then your liver will convert that to TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. And that is associated with a number of negative outcomes. So this is why some studies, so if you have studies, for example, you go back in the older literature, they don't have the microbiome. This is why they're like, oh, it creates TMAO. Oh, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. It, it depends. If there's about 20 species, we actually used to monitor them in Arabelle. So we had a test that we would give to people to monitor for them. Um, and we would just, just look. Uh, and we actually, uh, and we have this, you know, with the gut health test, like from Thorne, we can look at the same, you know, the same bacteria and so forth. And we're actually looking into this uh, as part of this, um, you know, what we're doing on brain health right now. But basically, that's exactly right. So you can personalize this. So in your gut, so there's a few things. One, low-level berberine. Uh, we're just, uh, just got a paper on this yesterday, so just starting to read through it. But low-level berberine uh, is inhibitory to uh, those bacteria in the gut, uh, makes it less likely that you'll get TMAO. So that's one thing that we're investigating right now, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, the second is you do want to monitor for that. So I take a lot of phosphatidylcholine, but I monitor my gut microbiome to make sure I don't have, and currently I don't have the species that are making TMAO. And, uh, and I actually did a TMAO test uh, to validate as well. And so my TMAO is not elevated. And okay. so- Who sells that test? That one I got through my doctor, so I don't recall. Oh, uh, the doctor, you could get I, it through I, a doctor? You could, the TMAO test you can do through a doctor. I got mine oh, through. Nice. I got okay. mine through a doctor on that case. Uh, in that okay. case, and then of course the microbiome test. You know we've gotten them, and you know probably some other people probably have. Uh, I don't know how much they do TMAO exactly, but probably they do. And you would say the same thing for carnitine as well. Whether you have those bacteria, is yeah. that the same mark? Before I was really focused on phosphatidylcholine. Uh, that's what I primarily used it for because uh, you know I I like to eat red meat. I you know but. So I, I monitor for that. So I try to monitor, you know, my lipid levels for that, uh, which typically have been pretty good. And then, uh, but I ha- did monitor for TMAO. So we have, we had like this score that would just uh, look at the abundance of TMAO producing molecules in, or I'm sorry, bacteria in, in the gut. And so the thing there was that I do monitor. So if it gets, if it's, if it starts trending high, like I'll back off, I'll back off you know, eating hmm. you know, foods that have the carnitine. And now that I know about it, I may try to, I may try, um, um, well, I'm already taking berberine. So when I saw that, I'm like, maybe that's what my TMAO is like staying fine. I don't know. I've got to look, I got to look more up that page. I just probably I've, didn't aware of that. Yesterday. I've got a list of 12 things that uh, decrease TMAO. Berberine is one of the things on the list. I could uh, send you that, that list or. Uh, yeah, great. Yeah, or, I just started or, looking at that more. Or I could just list it off so that everybody knows about it. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, probiotics, specifically L. rhamnosus GG and L. plantarum, re- butyrate and resistant starch, resveratrol, red yeast rice, gynostemma pentophyllum, lycopene, pterostilbene, extra virgin olive oil, molybdenum, garlic, garlic and allicin, and celery. And, and uh, for olive oil and celery, it's specific molecules in these uh, foods. But anyway. Oh. 
Um, That's actually yeah. where I take about a third of that. No wonder my TMA is. I started thinking so much phosphatidylcholine after we started doing the brain research. <laughs> exactly. Okay. That's great. Uh, we are uh, running towards end. I know you have to go. And so, uh, yeah, tell us um, where people could find you. What uh, is there anything you want to promote? Uh, oh, you know, we forgot one thing, if you don't mind. Just list off as many supplements as you can that you take. Go. Let's see if you can reach the 10. This is a memory test. Alzheimer's test. Alzheimer's test. Uh, so I take our resveratrol, which is nicotinamide, riboside, and uh, resveratrol together. I okay. take quercetin. I take uh, NAC. Uh, okay. NAC. Uh, NAC for uh, antioxidants. Let's see, vitamin D. I take the thorn multivitamin AM and PM. Those each have 20 or 30 things in them. Okay. Uh, total, uh, let's see, berberine, uh, Mariva. Uh, curcumin, okay. Curcumin, phosphatidylcholine. Uh, let's see, what else? what else is in there? Can we uh, get to 10? And this I is take, a hard test, by the way. Oh, I take glycine. I take glycine. Glycine? Um, yeah, glycine and, oh, uh, Lipids, omega. I take omega threes. Okay, there we go. Let's Bam. see. You got the ten. <laughs> you passed. You passed Joe's Alzheimer's test. The phosphatidylcholine is is obviously working for you. <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome. I there was a lot that we didn't get to, but unfortunately, you do have to go. And uh, okay, so tell me um, where people can find you. What do you, you know? Is there anything uh, you have a book coming out? Uh, yeah. So main thing, if you're interested in some of the things we talked about today, uh, the age of scientific wellness is coming out. It's under the Belknap imprint of Harvard Press. It's available now on Amazon and other uh, outlets uh, for pre-order. Uh, I did co-write it with Lee Hood, uh, who we mentioned a couple times. Lee, for people that don't know, uh, invented automated DNA sequencing. It received the uh, National Medal of Science from President Obama variety of many, many other things. Uh, one of the kind of living legends of biotechnology. Uh, so we did write this book together and uh, it goes through kind of this whole aspect of how we think healthcare needs to be changed around a wellness uh, perspective and everything else, um, you know, that I talked about, all the things are available at thorn.com as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming here and we shall be in touch. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. All right. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave a review and also like and subscribe for more great content.